pastors here at Redemption. And uh, this morning we're going to be moving along in Matthew. We're going to be looking in uh, Matthew chapter 26 uh, as we kind of make our way to the events of this, this week of the Passion of Christ. But before we begin, would we just pray with me? Our Father, we just thank you for, for your son, Jesus. We thank you for your great love for us, that you sent him to come, that he set aside his position, and that he came and he humbly lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again, that he's made a way for us, that he's created a pathway for each one of us to be in right relationship with you, to know you as our father, to become sons and daughters of I pray, Father, that the gospel would be uh, heard this morning, that it would be preached this morning, that as we sing, we would be singing the gospel, and that our ears would be reminded of your good news. Because I am sure that our only hope is that your Holy Spirit will allow our hearts to hear the good news and be changed so that we value you over everything else and so that we worship you with all of our life. Life flows from you, God. I pray this morning that we would hear that. I pray that as I preach, you would uh, give me words, that you would say what you once said, and that you'd have our ears hear what you'd have each one of us hear. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we're in Matthew uh, chapter 26, and before we even really get going, I just want to read these first few verses. It's Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 through 5. Matthew 26, 1 through 5, if you want to follow along. It says this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that is, this, all these discourses that he's gone through, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. In these first five verses, as we've seen even over the last several months, Jesus has foretold uh, the coming cross and his resurrection several times. And here we see the final foretelling of his own crucifixion. He's clearly in control. He's set course for the cross. He even knows what day it's going to happen. It's going to happen in two days. It's going to happen on the Passover. And we also see, after this foretelling, we also see that the chief priests and the elders are making their plot to kill Jesus, right? We know uh, we're upon the Passion of the Christ this week. This is Palm Sunday. We know that we're upon the Passion of Christ. We've made our way here through the book of Matthew over quite some time, and this is the week. The Passion of the Christ. That's his suffering that Jesus will walk into and endure for our sake and ultimately for the sake of glorifying the Father in all things. That's what we're celebrating this week. That's what we're observing this week. So the stage is set. The plot's being formed. Jesus has set final course for the cross. But before Matthew takes us uh, to the scene of Jesus' arrest, there's this passage that we're going to get to this morning in, in, in Matthew 26, 6 through 29. Now, uh, over the last several months, or a couple of years really, I've been writing a lot. I've been writing a lot of papers for school. Now I you know, get to write sermons pretty 
often we're doing this blog thing, so I, I have to write some blogs from time to time. I just feel like I'm writing papers and whatnot all the time. Um, and uh, it's amazing to me how many mistakes I make when I'm writing. I mean, I, my brain just works faster than my, my fingers can type, I guess, because I make a lot of mistakes, and we probably all have this issue, right? But uh, oftentimes, like I said, my brain's working faster than my fingers, I guess, and I make a lot of mistakes. And so I have kind of made it a habit, habit to try to, hopefully I get my stuff done in, in time to where I can leave it, especially for school. I have a problem not getting it done quite in time to do this. But so I can leave it alone for a day and then come back to it because I kind of can go cold on it, right? And then I can look back over it for mistakes. Um, it's the only way I can find them because if I'm, if I start like editing my own writing right after, right after I finish the paper for school or whatever, uh, you know, you, you start going back through it and I still miss the same mistake. I, I miss all the misspellings. I miss all the, the words that aren't there or the extra words that are there because I'm still thinking the same thoughts I just thought 15 minutes ago when I read it. And so I just miss them. I think it's because I'm too close to my original thought, like I said. I can't read the sentence without thinking the same thing. And I think sometimes this is just how we are. We, we can be so close to something, so on the inside of the thing, that we are easily blinded. Just like when you're editing a paper or a letter or a sermon or whatever you have to write. We all have to write things. Sometimes you can be so close to it, so inside, that you're just blinded to all the mistakes or blinded to the things you're not seeing. And so we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other religious and political groups are against Jesus. We've been seeing this throughout Matthew. We've like seen this over and over again as he's confronting all these different groups. We know that uh, they, they're missing Jesus. We've seen how many have passed up the king and his kingdom for their own kingship and their own kingdoms, right? And we've, uh, and we've seen a lot of things that we need to be on guard against, even ourselves, in how he's talking to others. So we don't, find our, we don't want to find ourselves, like Brent speak about, spoke about just a, a couple weeks ago, we don't want to find ourselves being these white, whitewashed tombs that look great on the outside but are nothing more than a carrying case for dried up dead bones. We can get things from that, from the way he deals with, with others, and we know he, these others have missed him. But I think this week, in this passage, things get a little more personal because it's for the insiders. That is, it's the insiders. And for us, that's us. We're the churchgoers, right? A lot of us here are in church every week. You're serving, you're doing whatever, you're, you're here always. We need to pay careful attention this week. Because what happens here with Jesus is with the insiders. Well, the people he's talking to this week are with the insiders. The very last scenes before Jesus goes to the cross have to do with the hearts of those who are with him. The hearts of those who are close to him. They're the insiders. They're the disciples and some other very close friends of Jesus. And we too are the insiders. So I want us to see this morning that there's a warning here for us as we head into these holidays and into this, this time to ob observe these, these days. We need to be careful. We who are the insiders, who are the churchgoers, we who seem to rub up against the shoulders of Jesus every day uh, with our missional communities and our DNAs and our uh, you know, our, just our church life in general, we're close to it. We need to be careful that we're not self-deceived in the thinking that we're in and therefore having nothing more to submit Jesus, to Jesus in our, as our king.
I think it's easy just, uh, my point is that we, it's just easy to kind of get on the inside and just know you're on the inside and just stop really looking to Jesus as your Lord and King and really believing that you have anything else to submit to him. You're in, you've got the thing, you're, you're on the inside, you've got the scoop. Everybody else needs to start looking to Jesus as Lord, but it's easy for us to miss him too. If you no longer feel the pull on your life to submit to Jesus as Lord, then we have to start asking, why are we even here? Why are we staying so close? Why are we staying on the inside? Why are we keep rubbing shoulders with Jesus if he's not our Lord? We need to consider whether we're postured in worship of Jesus or positioned to betray him. That's what I wanted to look at this week. Are we postured to worship Jesus or are we positioned to betray him by being the inside, on the insider, one of the insiders? Before we go any further, I just want to read the rest of this passage. We're going to read through it. It's Matthew 26, 6 through 25. The story is unfolding as we make our way to the cross, and I just want us to, to go into that story together. So I'm going to read this. Matthew 26, 6 through 25. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in this dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. This morning I want us to really kind of focus in on the contrast between these two stories that we see, Mary's anointing Jesus and Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Matthew places the story of uh, the anointing uh, at Bethany thematically. Uh, so like if you look at some other books, Mark does the same thing. He kind of places the story thematically, but John places it chronologically. And so, you know, it actually happens in a little bit of a different order, but Matthew intentionally puts the story here thematically, right? And so we have to kind of ask, what's he getting at? Why did he do that? Why did he put the story here instead of 
where maybe it actually happened in the timeline. It's because Matthew's trying to get at something. And so to see what he's doing by putting it in this sequence, let's just look at the story. Uh, we can learn from some of the other accounts. And in, in John's account of the same story, uh, we're able to see that Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead, uh, resurrected from the dead, and, some, and his sisters, Martha and Mary, they're present at the same dinner. But this is a gathering with several of Jesus' longtime friends, and of course, the disciples are there too. It's a bunch of insiders. It's a gathering. Uh, it's at this gathering that Mary, also revealed in John, is the person who did this. Uh, Mary uh, comes and anoints Jesus with a very expensive ointment. She dumps ointment over his head, which sounds, you know, I, I would be upset, but um, different time, different culture. Uh, it was a rel- relatively normal thing to do at the time, right? As small amounts of perfumes and oils and ointments would often be poured on the heads of guests by the host in order to enhance the feast that they were about to partake in. Uh, so it's not uncommon. It's not really weird that she just walked up and threw, threw some oil on him uh, <laughs> because we don't do that, I know. But, uh, but they did then. It was pretty normal. However, this is abnormal. This is not just a small amount, and it's not just the, the, the household, household perfume or ointment that they have. This was a very expensive bottle, probably worth about a year's wages. It's worth about a year's wages. And Mary doesn't just pour a small amount out and pour it on Jesus. She pulls the whole bottle, just breaks the flask open and pours it on him. And in John's account, we also see her rubbing it on his feet and wiping it with her hair. Also weird. You know, I don't like to be touched, so there's that. But, you know... But it's not that weird then. And, I mean, you know, she's obviously doing, she's pouring out this expensive ointment on Jesus, pouring out the whole bottle and serving him in such a way as to wash his feet and even dry them and and, and put the oil on with her hair. Matthew then says in verse 8 and 9, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Like I said, it was worth a year's wages. It's very expensive. I don't have a year's wage, uh, a bottle of cologne around the house worth that much. But first thing I want to say, there's a couple of quick observations about how they, how they respond here. They're very indignant. They say, why this waste? There's two things I want us to see. First, I want us to see, want us to see how John identifies that the disciple who actually spoke up was Judas. In John's account, we see that it was Judas who spoke up and said, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. And it says this in John 12, 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared for the poor. Listen to that. He said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he he used to help himself to what was put into it. So John's pretty straightforward in calling out Judas here uh, in his retelling. Apparently, it was Judas who spoke up, who questioned uh, the the, the using of this expensive ointment. Uh, And we can already see then the contrast between Mary's heart in anointing Jesus with a very costly ointment and Judas' heart in, in calling her into question. Mary's heart treasured Jesus. Mary's heart was about serving Jesus and worshiping Jesus. Mary's heart treasured Jesus. But Judas had a heart that treasured something else. It would be tough to narrow down exactly 
what Judas treasured more than anything else. I mean, we could say it's money because he gets the 30 pieces of silver and he steals money. I don't, I don't know exactly what was going on in Judas, Judas's heart. But we do know that Mary treasured Jesus and Judas treasured something else. The second thing I want us to see is how Matthew doesn't mention Judas. Why doesn't he mention Judas but John does? Matthew says that the disciples spoke up. So probably all of them had some concerns about this waste of money. And that's, that makes sense. Do you, if you were here last week, you know that Jesus just got done with the discourse where at the end, he's like, what you've done to the least of these, so you've done to me. This is the charge that they've just left with. So it makes sense that they're kind of like, what's going on? You know, we, we have a year's worth of wages right there we could have given to the poor. It makes sense. But while Judas obviously used his position as an insider with Jesus to look for personal gain and treachery, the others aren't so far gone. But they're, they're still with Jesus. They're just in need of some refocusing. They seem to still need some correcting of their attention as they're focused on their works and their work in ministry more than worshiping Jesus fully. So Matthew puts that out there. I mean, look, all the insiders here have a different perspective, a different position towards Jesus. Mary has a heart that's treasuring Jesus. Judas has a heart that's treasuring something else and ready to betray Jesus. And the disciples are, they're still there with Jesus, but they're, they're still relying on their works. They're still relying on their, their works in ministry. So Matthew, of course, in his, in his telling of the story, he still gets there, even though he leaves Judas out uh, in that particular part, he still gets there and he still begins the contrast the heart of Mary with that of Judas as he tells his betrayal. And that's why he's put the story here so that we can contrast, we can see the difference here. So directly after Mary worships Jesus rightly, treasuring him enough to like give up everything she has, treasuring him enough to give up a year's wages just to worship him, Judas calls her out into question. And then Judas leaves there and he goes to the chief priest to see what he can get for turning Jesus over to them. What do they need Judas for? Because like they, they wanted to take him in stealth. They couldn't do it where the crowds were because that was going to be a, a mess. So Judas goes to help them by taking Jesus in a time and place where the crowds won't be up that late. You know what they gave him? 30 pieces of silver. I have to wonder what, what it was with Judas. Like I said, I can't quite narrow it down. But there was obviously some stuff hanging out in his heart, right? There was some stuff that he's dealing with, but he was also stuck around a long time. Like, he's been around Jesus for like three years. And it wasn't easy. They were homeless. They're going from place to place. What's going on in Judas? Was he with Jesus in the beginning because he did genuinely care for people? Maybe he wanted something good, or maybe he wanted to be a part of something good, or maybe he wanted the glory of being a part of something good. And he thought Jesus could be the way to that for himself. Maybe he was kind of on board until Jesus was like, yeah, it's okay to spend a year's wages to worship me. Maybe that didn't sit right. Maybe it bothered him was the idea of worshiping Jesus. Maybe the idea of working with Jesus wasn't that bad, but the idea of worshiping Jesus, maybe that was hard. Maybe it's actually pretty hard for some of us. Maybe it's hard for me just about every day. Maybe he was happy to do good things, but worshiping Jesus, that's a lot to ask. I don't know. 
But Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver is equal to about four months' wages. The oil was worth 12 months' wages. Judas betrayed Jesus for four months' wages. So Mary spent three times as much to worship Jesus as Judas made to betray him. And he called her into question. It's interesting that this is the same price, this 30 pieces of silver, this four months of wages. It's it's the same price that the law demanded to be paid for a slave who was accidentally gored to death by somebody else's bull in the Old Testament. It's the same amount of money. What does that reveal? Mary served Jesus. She served him by washing his feet with oil. But Judas meant Jesus to be his servant. He wanted to own, he was his property. He was using Jesus to whatever end. As an insider, we have to ask, as an insider, are you postured in worship or positioned for betrayal. Are you serving Jesus? Are you postured to worship Jesus? Are you making Jesus serve you? And if that's the case, you may be positioned to betray him yourself. And if you betray Jesus, you're betraying yourself as well. The question is who or what was being valued by Mary, by Judas, by the other disciples? And how should our position or our privilege be spent. See, Judas, he used his position for personal gain and ultimately treachery for uh, betrayal, ultimately even against himself. The disciples were in danger of valuing the work of ministry more than valuing Jesus himself, which is an easy trap for many of us to fall into as insiders. How should we position, how should our position or privilege be spent, like Mary, right? I know this is, it's obvious when you start looking at the contrast. She used her position and her privilege for worship of Jesus through an act of service. So the question I'm asking us then is how are you and I using our position and our privilege like Judas or Mary for worship or for treachery? Which one are we using it for? When I started asking that question as I was going through this, I, re- I kind of was reminded of uh, a time where I was uh, positioned in a place with a friend where I could either love him and give him good advice or I could betray him and give him bad advice. Um, it was a time where he needed some advice because he was facing some big decisions on whether to move and take a job or whether to stay in Augusta and, and, and do ministry here. Uh, that's right, ministry. And uh, there was some stuff hanging out in my heart. It was He didn't know about it. We hadn't talked about it. I didn't tell him what was going on. I didn't tell him that I was angry with him. I was tired of him being around. I was tired of him stealing glory. I mean, this was a long time ago. This was like a decade ago. We were really close friends. But some stuff had happened, and I was just tired of him being around. I was tired of him stealing the glory, of him getting the attention, of it always being about, you know, him being better. I wanted it for me. I don't, it wasn't even like he was that, getting that much. I just felt jealous. But I was tired of him being around. So I hadn't talked to him about it. I hadn't really felt, uh, I hadn't told him how I felt about the particular situation and how I was irritated or how my heart was troubled. 
that was mostly because it wasn't about him. It was about me, and it was also because I was so inside and so close that I didn't even, I was blinded to my own junk that was in my heart. Anyways, there was sin in my heart. I didn't want to deal with it. I wanted to feed it. I wanted him gone. I wanted the glory. I was blind to all this, and at that pivotal moment in his life, he asked me for advice, and I told him to go. Like my best friend. I told him to leave, and he left. I mean, I'm not the only person he asked, I'm sure, and I think that's not necessarily the wrong thing that he did. But I know what my position in my heart was at the moment. At a pivotal moment in my friend's life, should I stay or should I go, seeing an opportunity to feed my own sinful desires, I used my position for betrayal, and I advised him to move on. See, it's easy to write it off and say, yeah, well, if it would have been, been different if it was Jesus. We do that with the Pharisees all through Matthew, right? Well, the Pharisees are crazy. I don't understand how they, well, what about the insiders? They missed them too. And I probably would have missed them too. It's easy to write, write it off, say, yeah, well, it would have been different if it was Jesus, but it wouldn't be. We just heard it last week, right? How we act with the least of these. How we are positioned to serve or to make them serve us is how we are postured towards Jesus. What posture are we taking? Are we postured towards worshiping Jesus or are we positioned to betray him? We can look at the relationships in our life and get a clue. Let's read again Matthew 26, 10 through 13, where Jesus answers the disciples' objections to the wasted oil. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not have, always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We've seen throughout Matthew how so many have chosen not to value Jesus above all else. Now we see how even Judas, one of his twelve, one in his inner circle, chooses to value something else more than Jesus. So insiders, churchgoers, Christians in the room. What's going to make you more like Mary than like Judas? What's going to make me more like Mary than like Judas? What's going to posture us towards Jesus more like Mary than, than position us like Judas? Jesus says of Mary that wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Michael Wilkins is a commentator. He wrote this. He says, In the proclamation of the gospel, the true story behind this story will be told that she is performing an act of worship to her Lord and setting him above all other values. Her example should set a high precedent for all subsequent disciples of Jesus. So do you want to be Mary? And you want to be more like Mary and not like Judas? Then Jesus has to be your treasure. Is he worth wasting everything on? Is he worth wasting everything on? Again, are the least of these worth wasting everything on? Would you throw away a year's wages all at once just to worship him? If you feel unsure, I think you're probably not alone. And we're going to finish up 
this, this passage. We're going to see the disciples are in the same boat. The disciples seem pretty unsure even at the Passover meal with Jesus. Jesus tells him that one of them will betray him. And we just read this. He says that one of you is going to betray me. And then they go around the table and each one responds sorrowfully asking, is it I, Lord? Of course, really, each one has answered his own question unaware in their addressing him as Lord. Whereas Judas, if you notice as we read, did not address him as Lord. Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, teacher? And Jesus, of course, says, you have said so. Is Jesus Lord? Is he worth submitting to? Is there something, is he who you're submitting to? Or is he just your teacher? Just a good teacher. There's a difference in Jesus being a teacher and being Lord. Who is he to you? Why are you here? Why are you staying on the inside? Is, is he a good moral teacher? Is there something that you think you could like get out of that? Is there some glory you're seeking for yourself? Is that possible? Because the truth is that I can't, I cannot tell you. I said, if you want to be more like Mary than you want to be like Judas, you have to treasure Jesus over all else. But I can't tell you how to do that. Nobody can tell you how to go do that. If I could tell you how to do that, then I'd be making the same mistake that the disciples would be, relying on their works. The truth is that I can't tell you to go and make Jesus worth everything to you. He either is worth everything or he's not worth everything. Just like you can hardly change an orange tree into an apple tree by tying apples onto it, which we've talked about several times in Matthew, Jesus is either worth everything to you or he isn't. You're either an apple tree or you're not. No amount of trying harder or doing better or giving up whatever is going to change that. This isn't a gospel of works. There isn't any action that you can take to make him worth everything to you because everything you can do can be tainted with some corrupt motive, with some corrupt intention. To, again, glorify yourself, make yourself as a king over your own kingdom. We will do that. All I can ask, because I can't tell you what, how to do this. I can't tell you how to treasure Jesus. All I can ask is that you try to step out of yourself. Maybe take a step back from the inner circle, from being an insider, from being too close, so that you can listen. And listen really hard to the gospel and to the good news of the person and work of Jesus. Because I can tell you the good news of Jesus Christ, which can inform, listen, this is what the good news does. It informs our heart by the work of the Holy Spirit to let us know the love of Christ and to let us know that he's worth everything. And when our heart's informed like that, then it changes. So they can't do anything to make that happen. So I'm just asking you to step out. Step out from the inside and listen. Have you heard the good news that makes him worth everything? Have you been telling each other the gospel? Do you preach the gospel to yourself? Are you reminded of the gospel that you need Jesus to be your Lord, not just your teacher? You were created to worship him. 
and, the, and worshiping him is more satisfying than anything else you might gain or anything, any other good work that you could accomplish. Worshiping Jesus, worshiping God is what you are created for. And the good news is that while you are unable to do that, Jesus has made a way for you to be able to live according to the purpose for which you were created, which means he's made a way for you to stop being broken and dead and to start being alive and well. We know from other gospel accounts that Judas leaves the scene right after this. Is it I, Rabbi? So you have said, and Judas is out the door. He leaves the scene in these last few verses, Matthew 26 uh, through 29, Matthew 26, 26 through 29, uh, Jesus, this is Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. It's a good place, I think, for us to finish this morning because in this, the good news is delivered, and it's the good news that changes everything for us. So listen, Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now we, at Redemption Church, every week take communion. We come down the aisle and we break off the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice. And as we take the bread, somebody tells us, this is the body of Christ that's broken for you. And we take the wine or the juice, we say, this is the blood of Christ that's shed for you. And we do this together to remember what Christ tells his disciples right here. The good news that he was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Just as the blood of the lamb was wiped over the door, uh, the doorpost to spare the children of God's people at the first Passover way back in Exodus when the Israelites are exiting Egypt. So the body and blood of Jesus was given so that our sins could be more than just passed over, but paid for in full. He resolved to pour himself out for us even while we were sent against him. That's the good news. Jesus came and he died for us even while we were sinners, even while we were set against him, even while we were positioned to betray him. Jesus died for us to come and to make a way for us to be sons and daughters of God. Uh, Leon Scrump is an Acts 29 pastor in Atlanta and uh he asked a question at this, uh, we went to a conference, a few of us went to a conference uh, just about, just a few weeks ago called the Just Gospel Conference. Uh, and he asked this question, it's meant to challenge us all personally and how we steward our position and our privilege, uh, you know, and how, we, and how we steward our position and our privilege. And he asked this, he said, how do you leverage your obvious privilege to create pathways for those who might not otherwise have it? 
How do you leverage your obvious privilege to create pathways for those who might not otherwise have it? And of course, in this particular talk, we're talking about specifically white people and their privilege and how they're leveraging it uh, to, to, you know, to bring justice about for, for those who are oppressed in our society or um, whether it's you know, a racial thing or whether it's a, a, a gender thing. But he asked this question, how do you leverage your obvious privilege to create pathways for those who might not otherwise have it? And I'm not going to get into all that, but this morning, as we take this meal together, as we come and we break bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice, and we turn our eyes towards Jesus and all that he's poured out for us, and we're remembering that, may you know, every time that we come and we take communion, I just want us to step back from our insider perspective in order to listen well to the gospel and to reflect on Jesus' position as Lord in our lives. So as we come and we take this morning and we, we think about him being poured out for us, let's be reminded of the good news and the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel, and ask this question. How did Jesus leverage his position and privilege to worship God? How did Jesus leverage his position and privilege to worship God? He laid his life down in order to create a pathway for us to be sons and daughters of God who otherwise could never be one with him. He modeled how we should leverage our position, how we should be postured and worship towards God. It's in service. And Mary served Jesus as she was postured to worship God. He laid down his life to create a pathway for us to be sons and daughters of God who otherwise could never be right with him. Do you know the implications of this good news? Without him, we're the walking dead. We're gnashing our teeth and clawing miserably to lift ourselves above everything and above everything else, everybody and everything else, even our good works. I'm not just saying that. It's not just like because it's in the Bible that we'll gnash teeth and whatever into hell. I'm saying look around. Test your own soul, right? Without Jesus, we're walking dead. We're, we're clawing our way miserably, trying to lift ourselves above everything and above everybody else. Apart from Jesus, is there any true rest in your heart? This is just to evaluate. And apart from him, is there any true rest in your heart, in your soul, or in your mind? Is there any way to be content, truly content? Is there any hope, any, is there any hope in anything you accomplish to be truly satisfied? Or do you think maybe it'll all fade away and there's no satisfaction? With Jesus is different. With Jesus, we're alive forever. We're alive forevermore. Joyfully learning. This is the picture in my head. We're joyfully learning how to crawl, walk, and run in our Father's arms. There's hope beyond the brokenness of this world. There's truly peace and joy in Jesus, even among this messy world. And there's courage. He makes us brave to believe that the broken world can be made right again and that we get to be a part of that with our God. 
So this morning as insiders, as those who are always rubbing shoulders with Jesus and his people, may we not be self-deceived, taking, coming and taking bread and wine while not truly believing, not truly calling him Lord, maybe just being more prepared to call him teacher, not really ready to submit our life There's a difference between Jesus being the teacher and being Lord. We're here, like I said, rubbing shoulders with Jesus and his people. Are we doing that to serve ourselves? Are we doing that to serve him? This is questions we need to ask. We have to step back and ask these questions of ourselves. Is he Lord? Is there still more places then where he wants to press in on you? Are you increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. That's how we define discipleship around Redemption Church. Are you asking him to do that? Or are, are you with him because he changes us and calls us to better living? This morning as we take communion together, let's worship Jesus Christ as Lord. As we come, let's remember that he's our Lord. And let's ask him to transform us more and more into his likeness because that's life. That's real life. Life flows from God. Life flows from Jesus. We just sang it. That's life. So let's ask him to give us more life by, by helping us to submit more and more to him and become more and more like him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I pray and hope that you can hear the good news of Jesus this morning. You were created to be in right relationship with God, and your purpose is to glorify him in all things. He made you for that purpose, to glorify him. And I know that could be a lot to get your head around, but that is what you were made for, and so you won't be happy, and you'll never be satisfied unless that's what you're doing, because that's what you were made to do. But you can't do it because of sin. You're completely unable to fulfill your purpose. And that which doesn't fulfill its purpose is broken and dead. Just any other item in our world you can apply that to. If it doesn't fulfill its purpose, it's broken or it's dead. But Jesus came to deal with your sin. And through the gracious person and work of Jesus, we who are dead can be made alive again. He laid his life down. He laid his life down humbly in order to create a pathway for you to be called a son or daughter of God and you could in no other way have been made right with him. It's by believing in Jesus, by placing your faith in Jesus that we experience salvation. It's by his grace that it's even there. It's by believing him, by placing our faith in him that we experience salvation because that's our coming to life. As we believe in him, as we trust him, as we walk in his ways, we're experiencing the life that he gives. He can change you from the inside out. He can bring you to life. He can give you hope. He can give you peace. He can give you purpose. He makes you brave for tomorrow and for the next day and forevermore. That's the gospel. That's what we believe, is that he's redeeming all things, that he's restoring all things, and that he's made a way for us to be called sons and daughters of God. Now, if you don't know him and you'd like to pray with somebody, you'll be able to do that as we move into a time of response. There'll be people in the back with orange tags on. You could grab me. You could grab 
Brent, you can grab anybody. Uh, and we'd be glad to pray with you. If you do know Jesus and you want to pray, um, just ask to submit all of life to the Lord. Remember him as your Lord. Let's pray together, y'all. That's what we're here for. Grab us and let's pray together. We're going to take communion. If you do, like we do every week, come down the middle, row each way, and we'll break off the bread and we'll dip it in the wine or the juice. And as we do that, we're remembering and proclaiming that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's done what he said he would do, that he's Lord, that he's king, that he's worth everything. And we're remembering and like, we're remembering the good news and how it directs our hearts that we're intentionally posturing ourselves before him in worship. So take the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice and remember Jesus. And as you remember Jesus, you're proclaiming it to others here in this body as well as we do that together. If you don't know Jesus and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not come because you don't, you're not, you can't say that. But we ask again that you just hear the proclamation that we're making in our action. But as we come, I just want us to ask this question, kind of reflecting. How did Jesus leverage his position and privilege to worship God? Remember, how did he leverage his position and his privilege to worship God? He did it by creating a way, a pathway for you to be right with God. He leveraged his position to make you right with, the, with, Jesus, with God. He laid his life down in order to create a pathway for us to be sons and daughters with God, those of us who otherwise could never have been made right with him. And during this time, we also have, we have a basket in the back where you can worship through giving of your tithes and offerings. It's just a, another act of obedience, another act of faith, another act of worship. And then, uh, like I said, there'll be people together in the back that can pray with you. I just invite us all just to ask during this time, is Jesus our Lord? Is he a teacher or is he something else? Are you positioned, is your heart postured in worship toward Jesus or is your heart positioned to betray him? Let's reflect on that and ask Jesus to be our Lord. Father, I thank you for this time we're together. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for Jesus. pray for our hearts, God. I pray that you would open up the eyes of our heart by your, by your Holy Spirit so that we would know and comprehend what is the height, the depth, and the width, and the length of your love for us. That we would get that there's nothing else you could do to show us how much you love for us. Love us. You've gone out for our salvation. You've sent your son out for our salvation. You've fought for us, and you've won. You've made a way for us to know you. Not only that, you've made a way for us to be your children. And you are raising us. You're shaping us into what you created us to be like. While we were unable to be that way, while we were dead set against you, you loved us. And you love us. I pray that we hear that. I pray that our hearts would be awestruck by what you've done. Pray that you would help us to reposture our hearts in worship by through service, even to the least of these, so that we'd be all in worshiping Jesus. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.